Welcome back to The Most Interesting Person You Know. My name is Natalie Chandra, and I'm probably not the most interesting person you know, but I am really interested in a whole bunch of things. Each season, we focus on a new topic, and this season, we're focusing on nuclear weapons. At the beginning of each season, I interview someone that I know who is really interesting, and at the end of that interview, I ask them who is the most interesting person they know. I'm Natalie Chandra, and this is The Most Interesting Person You Know. Brendan Thomas Noon is a research fellow for the Alliance 21 program at the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. Previously as research associate at the Lowy Institute, a leading think tank in the Australian political field, he specializes in U.S. relations, Indo-Pacific security, and particularly the ever-relevant U.S.-Asia relations. You may have seen his pieces in international newspapers, including The Economist, The Australian Financial Review, and The Washington Post. Personally, I highly recommend delving into his work for The Interpreter, where he was both an editor and contributor. Recommended as one of the most interesting person David Smith knew as of last episode, he certainly fits the podcast title. This interview comes to you in two parts. Thank you so much for joining me, Brandon. Yeah, thanks, Anne. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I can't believe David recommended me. Yeah. That is actually an honor in itself, to be honest. Yeah. Did, you, did it keep you up last night? I, like... Well, not really, but <laughs> <laughs> when I got the email, I was like, oh, this is very exciting. So. Okay, so right off the bat, um, I think it's sort of important in the academic field. Um, are you a fan of nuclear weapons? Yes or no? Um, are you a believer that they have a place in the international peacekeeping kind of strategy? Or are they weapons that purely cause destruction? Um, no, I'm not a fan. Of nuclear weapons. I think that they are potentially an existential threat to um, humanity. Um, they do play a role in how a lot of states, well, nuclear weapon states, conceive of their security, but there's also a lot of myth-making around them. They, they haven't been used since um, World War II. And so there's a lot of deterrence thinking is made up on what-ifs or logic trains, especially through the Cold War, that really haven't been tested, and there's no real way to test them. But I think fundamentally, nuclear weapons are controlled by humans. Humans are fallible. So I don't believe in this sort of um, the idea that you know, deterrence will always hold. So that's why I think they're not a good thing. I was kind of thinking about this before we met, or before yeah. we started, because I was sort of thinking about how, you know, at the end of the Cold War, I think that nuclear weapons, or thinking around nuclear weapons, got caught up with, like, the end of history pieces, that um, nuclear weapons would eventually become less of a factor in countries' defense thinking, naturally, because, you know, following Fukuyama's sort of theory mm-hmm. that was like, engrossing the West at the time. But the fact that nuclear weapons are becoming uh, more prominent in a lot of states, defense planning and national security thinking is just another data point that that thesis is sort of being proven wrong. The End of History was a theory put forward by Francis Fukuyama in 1989, where he proposed that history is an evolutionary process. Since the French Revolution, democracy has been proven as the most effective system of governance, and democracy will become more prevalent in the future. In 2014, Fukuyama wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal where he said he was less idealistic. With events like Arab Springs and democratic governments in countries such as Turkey demonstrating the failure of democracy and providing what people want from the government. 
More recently, with Brexit. By this referendum uh, to leave the EU. And the Trump's election. Donald Trump wins the presidency. The business tycoon, a TV personality. Fukuyama has been recorded in saying, 25 years ago, I didn't have the sense or a theory about how democracies can go backwards. And I think they clearly can. So I really like the term you used there, which was myth-making, um, which is interesting because I guess deterrence is that one of those big kind of the tenets of nuclear theory, but that's sort of opposed to what you said about the end of history, so there's kind of conflicting stories with <clears throat> nuclear weapons, which is really interesting. So where do you think that kind of puts us in this position right now, where this kind of crossroads of myths around nuclear weapons? Yeah, well, we're entering a new nuclear age. I think we're definitely in a new period where, you know, it's not so much like the Cold War where there's a dyad, we're entering into a multipolar world where we've actually never really had to think of deterrence in truly multipolar terms. So if I would say that, like I've said that before, and then um, French strategic thinkers get angry at me because <laughs> then they go, they go, you have to remember during the Cold War there was other nuclear powers like uh -huh. France. France had some. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. No, we France began the development of nuclear energy in World War II and began the militarization in 1958, where the French government began to put resources into the strike force. In 1960, on the 13th of February at 7.04 a.m., the first French nuclear test, codenamed Jeubois Blue, was detonated. At Regan, deep in the Sahara, France goes forward with the detonation of her first atomic bomb, defying a United Nations resolution, the heated protests of Japan, and most of Africa's newly independent nations, and the disapproval of both America and the Soviet. Now, France presses forward with this first in a series of firings to force her way into the exclusive nuclear club. This first blast is on a level with bombs exploded over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. The 250th nuclear weapon explosion in history carries France a step further towards General de Gaulle's dream of national glory restored. France would go on to test in Algeria until 1966, and then would go on to test within French Polynesia. France currently maintains the third largest nuclear weapon force in the world with approximately 300 nuclear warheads, having reduced their number by about half since the Cold War. Really, it was a dyad in a lot of ways. And more importantly, a lot of our deterrence thinking was built around that. But we never really had to, to kind of confront or uh, had to invent new thinking where you have countries like the United States simultaneously deterring both Russia and China. So U.S. builds ballistic missile defenses to, you know, stave off North Korean ballistic missiles. China actually doesn't have that many ICBMs. It has a kind of a minimum deterrence posture, so it starts to get worried, so it builds more, starts upgrading its capabilities, and then what impact that has on Russia. So it may not be directed at the partner or the person you're trying to deter, but it has flow-on effects. So I guess that sort of answers the next question, which is your work focuses on Asia. And I guess like that's probably why we should care, the complicating of the nuclear dialogue and the nuclear deterrence policies. Mm. Now, um, the nuclear competition is much more directly in our region, where the Indo-Pacific you know, probably has the most nuclear powers in any other region in the world. Within the Indo-Pacific, nuclear countries include the United States, North Korea, 
Pakistan, India, China, and debatably Russia. Within this geographical area and between these countries, there has been a high amount of nuclear proliferation and missile proliferation. Being geographically situated in this area means that Australia has had to reassess its own capabilities. These include possessing dual-use missiles, which are missiles that are conventional but can also be used to carry nuclear warheads. Furthermore, it is increasingly important for Australia to be able to detect whether oncoming missiles are nuclear or not. Especially Pakistan. So Pakistan has just recently tested cruise missiles of its new submarines it's getting from China. Now, those cruise missiles is very purposely kind of for, not forecasted, showed, or sort of telegraphed through statements and pictures and stuff that they're also nuclear capable. So messaging becomes difficult. And this is all complex, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not just Soviet Union in the US anymore, it's multiple different actors. So this is happening in Australia's region. Um, and that's what's different than the Cold War. It's happening much more closer to home. I mean, like, that has definitely changed, I guess, even the face of international security, like what we're focusing on. But um, you draw this really interesting kind of parallel between the economic growth within this region, because obviously it's BRICS. It's a huge mm -hmm. kind of economic growth in this region, and, like, we're really looking towards Asia. You've drawn a parallel between economic growth and the arms race. Yeah. So, like, what do you mean by this? Yeah, so it's a tough one, right? Like, so there's mm -hmm. a legitimate argument. So if I'm, yeah. if I'm India or China, my economy's growing, it's actually natural that yeah, my military absolutely. will grow. But it's trying to like figure out where the line is between natural growth and military capabilities and then what's an arms race. I mean, usually when there's mm -hmm. economic growth, there's always, not always, but often um, arms races just because the two are kind of intrinsically linked. As your economy grows, you develop higher scientific and technological capability. You know, there's a lot of dual-use technology out there, so, you know, satellite communications great for monitoring the weather, but it also can help you control your nuclear forces. You said in one of your articles about how this is really scary to me because China's incorporating artificial intelligence into some of their missiles, which is... Yeah, well, they all are. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. just China. Um, they mm -hmm. all are. Artificial intelligence is considered to be the next generation in warfare. While America's advantage in the 1960s was from their leadership in nuclear weapons, robots and artificial intelligence, with their prominence in the 21st century, means the power is shifting. America is trying to keep its advantage, seen in their development of the long-range anti-ship missile, LRASM. LRASM is a missile that uses AI to avoid enemy defenses, and the technology allows the missile to make the final targeting decision. China's parallel development in AI has been significant, and largely unreported. In the last five years, China has outstripped the US in the number of academic publications concerning AI, and they have had considerable numbers of commercial companies investing in innovation, which in turn is shaping China's military strategies. A key example of this is iFly Tech, an AI company which is focused on developing speech recognition and natural language understanding, which is a large step in the surveillance field. America still holds the international advantage. However, the technological gap between the two powers is narrowing, and it's likely to become closer in the coming years. 
Yeah, so this is like kind of a new area and it, it's not quite clear, I think, to a lot of people who are studying it exactly how this is going to affect things like strategic stability. We like to talk about strategic stability a lot because that's the idea that one country doesn't necessarily have an, uh, an overwhelming advantage on another that mm-hmm. makes the other one feel insecure. Um, and that can be both in nuclear realm and, you know, to a lesser extent, in the conventional, regular kind of um, warfare realm. We like to talk about strategic stability a lot because that's the idea that um, one country doesn't necessarily have an, uh, an overwhelming advantage on another that mm-hmm. makes the other one feel insecure. But actually, how do algorithms and particularly the speed in which decisions are made impact that stability? So if you are devolving decisions to machines, which some authoritarian countries in the past as well as now, um, it's been said kind of favored to do Russia probably more than China. So the U.S. kind of and the West sort of openly talks about keeping a human in the loop. Basically, any decision that's made to kill somebody in a, in a battlefield or a war, there's always a human that's going to be involved in the decision process at some time. Where other countries are kind of experimenting, it's like, well, the human keeping the human in that loop is actually too slow. That it oh, actually okay. matters uh-huh. about who fires first, or and this gets really complicated in all kinds of different scenarios, but yeah. essentially how fast that decision is made with the information available to it. And a robot, essentially, or an algorithm is always going to be faster than a human, so it might be faster than the system as a human in it by just devolving all the decisions to, um, to algorithms. Now, they're not going to do that with nuclear weapons, I don't think. And actually, we also do this to a certain extent already. Like, this is what's kind of interesting. So, like, you already see, like, parts of this happening. So, when the U.S. fires certain types of cruise missiles, there's different, like, ways they control that. So, one of them is, like, the missile, you upload a map, essentially, to the missile. And the missile, it pre-plots its position from where the ship or the plane or whatever fires it to where it it attacks, where its target is. And it will, like, follow that map, pre-programmed. Now, you know, we remain, we can remain in control of that missile, but that missile is essentially just pre-programmed to do something and it hits a target. And it'll check its internal map all the time to where it is because it has sensors on it. Um, So like in effect, you can start to see like the beginnings of where this will go. And this gets so, this gets crazy and actually future warfare stuff. So a lot of this battlefield infrastructure is built on satellites. So being able to use GPS to tell where you are, tell where the missiles are, tell where um, other parts of your military forces are, it all gets connected into a network. Now, China and Russia and the US have all been working on anti-satellite capabilities for 10 years. So what happens when all the satellites are like taken out? So there's a couple of answers to that that militaries are working on. One is that you be able to like launch satellites a lot quicker. So as soon as your satellites are taken out by missiles from the opposite side, you're able to just launch new satellites as faster than they can take them out. And you start to see this with like the X, what is it, the X-47B, like the new Air Force, the US Air Force planes, this plane that goes up there, all that stuff is all micro satellites, all that trend is about, has implications for that. The other way you combat this is you go, all right, satellite network is lost, but we'll figure out new technologies where we can replicate GPS things kind of on the ground. So they'll place like things like buoys in the ocean. This is really cool. So like buoys in different parts of the ocean that then ping off each other and connect. And so if you have a submarine, it doesn't actually have to connect to the space. It can actually just figure out where it is through ocean buoys that like triangulate exactly where it is. 
So going back to the point about like things becoming autonomous is that if you you basically some of the logic follows that you go okay we're not going to be able to control these things from space actually just make them autonomous they actually don't have to be controlled right like yeah. this is where the logic goes so you basically have a drone or a missile or something that you just set loose and it's completely self-contained where it doesn't connect to your satellite network or whatever because you're assuming in a conflict all that stuff's gone so if you have something that's self-contained you don't actually have to worry about that it's like operates independently military and defense logic takes you to sort of sometimes scary and like ethically questionable sort of stuff five ten years from now it's not it's not that far off i don't think yeah sorry we're away from nukes no i think that's fascinating so this is end of part one stay tuned to part two where we delve deeper into sea-based nuclear strategy and the presence of nuclear weapons in pop culture it's also really exciting as of this episode we will be starting a reading list that will cover the topics that we covered this episode as well as articles that brendan wrote you can access those on our instagram page at chatterley w natalie or our facebook page chatterley with natalie give those a follow and you can stay updated with the podcast thank you so much for listening I'm Natalie Chandra, and this is the most interesting person you know.